and we're going to uh, go ahead and get started with our Estate Planning 101. Uh, we have Jean Doremus and Jordan Matthews. Jean attended the University of Colorado Boulder, receiving her BA in economics in 1981. She also attended the University of Denver College of Law, receiving her JD in 1991. Jean has practiced law in Colorado for over 24 years and founded the law office of Jean C. Doremus LLC in 2002 in Aspen. The firm specializes in trusts, estates, probate, real estate, and business entities. Jordan Matthews gained experience in estate planning as an associate with the law office of Jean C. Doremus. She currently serves as general counsel and director of operations for Whitman Fine Properties and sits on the board for Alpine Legal Services. Please join me in welcoming Jean Doremus and Jordan Matthews to speak about estate planning 101. Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Estate Planning 101. Jordan and I are going to do this collectively. Um, so we are going to start with the portion that deals with non-medical, and then we'll transfer over into more medical issues um, later on. I'm going to allow everybody to ask a question in this first section because it's complex, and I think it would be helpful to all of you to have the ability, if, if it's confusing, to have me clarify or further explain. If it's something really specific to you, I'm happy to meet you one-on-one -on -one during the lunch hour in the cafeteria. So I'm looking for general questions that would be helpful to everybody um, that come up during the presentation. I'm gonna start with really the basics of estate planning 101 in what we deal with in our practice. Trusts um, are a doc. Trusts are a vehicle that we use that are fantastic. We use what we call revocable living. Thank you, revocable living trusts, or also revocable is also what they're called. These are trusts that are very similar to wills, but they have great benefits during your lifetime. Irrevocable trusts, which are a totally different animal, have different aspects. They have tax benefits. They have benefits for special needs children. So there's a whole a variety of trusts that aren't revocable, but irrevocable. Revocable is something that I see very commonplace in our valley to be used because they provide benefits during your lifetime. So I'm going to start with that. Um, trusts. Jordan, should I go to the next one? So trusts are, here's, here's the, the benefits. It allows you to hold assets during your lifetime, and it allows those assets to be managed by you as trustee or your co-trustee, and a successor trustee if you aren't able to do it anymore. It allows for you to not have to file a separate tax return. It's your social security number is the, is the tax ID. So it really doesn't create more expense in that arena. It does avoid probate if we get all those assets in your trust. Probate in Colorado is not that complex or expensive, but it is a process. It is a court action that requires usually hiring an attorney, actually filing an action, and getting the power from the court to distribute assets, which I'll talk to you about under a will arrangement. But a lot of people like to avoid that. And I find that if you have a very sim pretty simple or um, estate plan that we can work with that's not, doesn't have complexities, we can really get everything titled in your trust and avoid probate upon your death. The other thing it's good for is if you own property outside the state of Colorado and you're a Colorado resident. Let's say you own a condo in Florida or you own a piece of land in Moab or wherever that's outside the state of Colorado, we would title that asset in your trust to avoid probate in that state. As you can imagine, with second homeowners in Aspen, I do a lot of ancillary probate where somebody forgot they owned that condo in Aspen and they live in Ohio, and so now I'm opening a probate case in Colorado to transfer that asset. Again, it's process, it's, it's just, you know, it's expense, but it's really just more process than, than is needed. So again, if you have property in, out of state, you can put it in your revocable trust, and that would avoid probate in that state. <clears throat> 
The one that I really think is the most valuable is the seamless ability for your co-trustee, your successor trustee to manage your affairs. In our world now, powers of attorney are highly scrutinized. So if you have a trust arrangement, it allows for things to occur very seamless if one of you becomes sick or you have, um, you're no longer interested in managing your affairs. For whatever reason, you, you can pass that on to the sole, you can pass it on to your co-trustee as a sole responsibility or your successor trustee. I'll talk more about powers of attorney when I get to wills, but it's the best way to manage some manage your assets when you can't do it anymore. Confidentiality is important to some. It allows for you to not have any of your estate planning be subject to a court and therefore it's private in a trust agreement. So it's it's not for everybody. I don't I don't think that everybody should have a trust. I think it very much depends on the fact pattern of your life and what you have as assets and what you have as whether it's health issues or a spouse with issues that are health related or whatever your concerns are. It's a great alternative when you really care about some of those key pieces. Now, also the thing about a revocable trust, it is a, it is a mechanism that manages your assets during your lifetime. Now, if we go to wills, I'll switch here. Okay. So wills are probably what you all are very familiar with. That is a document that says, upon death, upon death, I want the following to occur. I want my spouse, my son, my best friend to be the personal representative. Personal representative is the Colorado term for what you may know of as executor or executrix. So it's that person that's been given the power under the will to distribute, pay your debts and distribute your assets upon your death. It, it absolutely requires a court case to be open in our probate court section of the Picking County District Court or wherever your court is. And But it's very much driven by the system of the the judge giving power to the personal representative to do the job they were given in terms of paying the debts, distributing the assets. So probate is required. Um, the thing about wills, they're simple in that they're great for, I only want to provide upon my death, and I want, I want it to be clear as day, and so therefore I create a will, and that is, the, that's the document, or I'm sorry, that's the procedure you use to distribute your assets. It does require court. Courts in Colorado are not complicated. They're not expensive. It's pretty simplified. But as I said earlier, it's a process. So it's really a personal decision whether or not you prefer a trust or a will. Now, there are other ways to distribute your estate that don't include a will or a trust. One is through what we call non-probate assets. What that means is if you have, let's use an example, you have three assets. You have a home, you have an IRA, you have um, a bank account. You can take those three, and those are the only assets you have, and you have no real serious debt. So you can, when I say serious, I just mean that's not complex. So you can get a deed, create a deed that's called a beneficiary's deed that states who gets your house upon your death. Or if you're married and you want that to go to your spouse, you would put that deed in joint tenancy, knowing that on the surviving spouse's death, you would have to have some indication where the property went beyond the spousal unit. And in the IRA, you do a beneficiary designation. That's easily changed. Beneficiaries' deeds are also easily changed. They can be revoked. It's just a, it's something you record in the Picking County Clerk and Recorder's Office, and it states this is what I want to happen with my property. If you use a beneficiary's deed, the same if you use a deed in joint tenancy. Now, with the bank account, we can put a payable on death designation. So that has the same benefits. So in that case, by not using a will or a trust, we can say where we want that is, that is directive so that upon your death, that's where it goes. It's not always that easy, but I do see clients with their fact pattern that that works beautifully for. So it's so specific to you as an individual and what you have in your life and where you want things to go, how you're going to set up your estate plan between a trust, a will, 
and if you were to use non-probate asset, a non-probate assets as a mechanism to transfer out through beneficiary designations. Now, the last is not the preferable one, I don't believe, and that is you die without anything. There are laws in Colorado. There are intestate laws. Unfortunately, it's what the legislature has approved, and it's not what may work for you. I've seen more often than not, there's unintended consequences with using that default mechanism of whatever the legislature has designed as your heir to your estate, depending on what your family unit is, or if you don't have a family unit. So I've seen where couples that don't have children end up having one of them dies, and it ends up with a parent, part, of, part with a parent, not to the spouse. So spouses don't necessarily have an automatic right. So those are areas that I think you want to avoid. If, if, in, in going to the issue of how do you have access to these documents, if you can't afford an attorney, there are people, there is Alpine Legal that will represent you. I know Senior Center, they, they have um, various members of people that work in this field that, including myself, that will meet and donate our services. So I don't want anybody to ever feel that they don't have the right to get the help they need just because they can't afford that. So, and if anybody has more questions about that, we can talk about that after, uh, during lunch or after this presentation. So next is, so recap. We have four ways your assets and debts can be handled through trusts, a revocable trust, a will. Now, non-probate assets don't deal with the debt, but the bank account would. So I, that's where the debt would be paid is under the bank account. It's, so you don't create an estate so that it all works through that estate. It's handling each asset individually. So if there isn't enough money to, it gets compli complicated if there's not enough liquidity to pay for those non-probate, to pay for the debt against the non-probate assets. And the last is just dying without anything, and that's called dying intestate. So does anybody have any questions at this point that I could be that I could clarify before we move on to other sectors of estate planning? Okay. Our laws are different in every state. I I believe you should have a, a will in according to the state that you live in because it is governed by the laws of our state. If you have that will, it's better than nothing, but it doesn't necessarily dictate what's going to happen if it's according to the laws of another state. Um, it happens a lot. But if you don't know you're going to I have clients that will say, well, I may move back to Florida. Well, then wait. You know, just go ahead and let's see where you end up becoming domiciled. But it is always better to have documents, all documents, in the state of Colorado because our documents are different in every state. So... No. Can so you the repeat? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. The question was, does a revocable trust need to be filed in any government, with any government agency? And the answer is no. It's private. Uh, the beneficiary's deed? Yes. I mean, I think you can do Jen, that. If, question, there's, if it, we can repeat the oh, question. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, the question is, in the non-probate asset uh, arena, if you will, if you have real property, can you add the personal property to that um, in your beneficiary's deed? And yes, I mean, I think it has to be very specific. Okay, so we'll move on. Question. Oh. I'm curious, um, when a trust is set up and there's beneficiaries, does everybody get to see what everybody else is getting, or is there a way to keep it private <laughs> um, from each beneficiary? Um, the answer is no if it's in the same trust. So if you have a trust agreement and you have three children and you divide it two-thirds, one-third, or if you divide it in some way, 
they have a right to see the vehicle or the um, legal document that provides their interest. What I do see is when you amend, let's say you, you change your beneficiary designations and you amend trusts along the way. I do encourage clients to restate their trust that doesn't show the history because they don't have a right to the history of what's transpired. That makes sense. If you one day decided to give it to two of your kids and the next day you decided to give it to three of your kids, you, if you restate that trust, you don't, they don't see that they were eliminated in the first trust. But when, you, when the document itself contains the distribution language for all your beneficiaries, yes, they have a right to see that. They have a right to know what their interest is in that trust. Did I answer that question? Yes, yes, okay. thank you. Okay. Now, there are ways to get around things that, in blended families, for example, I see people giving like a life insurance policy to one child and maybe distributing a trust to the other two children. You don't have to share that life insurance policy beneficiary designation. So I find there's ways that families get around that by just using the asset itself to distribute instead of doing it in a one collective trust document. Okay, so we'll move forward. Disposition of last remains. This, this is, and, and this isn't necessarily in priority of importance to, in one, in any particular way, it's just how it's come up. Disposition of last remains is a really important document. It's statutory, it basically is where you determine in writing, in your handwriting, whether you wanna be cremated, buried, or otherwise. There's, people have come up with some other things, I, but we really focus on buried and cremated. They, the, when you're in that, when, the, when that issue comes up, the issue is Farnham, for example, down in Glenwood, they want to know for sure whether or not you want to be cremated or buried. For obvious reasons, we've had lawsuits when people were cremated and they should have been buried. So for them, it's very important. It's also important, very important to the families because they may have differing interests in the families or beliefs. So you make that determination. Now, with respect to services or where you want to be scattered or where you want to be buried, um, if you know what you want, I really encourage people to let's let's state it. If you don't know, then you can we give that authority to a designee, as, as it's called, to make that decision for you upon your passing. I believe it's important you do as much as you can because it's easier on your families. I will give you a personal example because it's something I have experienced personally. I grew up um, in Aspen and my grandmother, I did her estate planning of course, and I didn't get to disposition of last remains because she got sick and I couldn't, I was, I couldn't do it. So she passes, but she's a very devout Episcopalian and went to the church you know, most days of the week. And I wished I had asked her what she wanted for her service. So for us as a family, we were, it was a lot of heartache trying to figure out how we could create something that was probably the most important thing to her. So I look at it as it's really easy to do it. And if, it's, if you know for sure, why not? Now, one thing I didn't say in the beginning of all this, which I think is important to bring up at this point, estate planning is important because notwithstanding the fact there are things before death, which we'll get to, that are important to state, but upon your death, why not put, lay it out exactly what you want? Your family's not guessing, there's no disputes, and it's a gift because the work that's being done on that side is so much minimized, it's minimized and the heartache is taken out of it. And it's also really hard to do all this when you don't feel well, or you're not in the right space, or you've just lost your spouse, or whatever the issues may be. So I really encourage people, it's so good to do it when life is great. And you put it on the shelf and be done with it until maybe someday you say, I better change that because now I want something a little different. So it's really important for many reasons, not just for yourself, it is for yourself, for your peace of mind, but for those that are gonna be able, to, that are going to be handling this, you know, upon your incapacity, upon your death, whatever the issue may be. 
it's a gift. It's a complete gift, and I've unfortunately seen the whole process go for full circle. And they, the, the children in that case that I'm referring to is, were so grateful because it made, they could enjoy you know, uh, the mem remembrance of their mom and not have to worry about issues that were legally presented to them that could have been handled beforehand. So disposition of last remains also contains language that has to do with whether or not you want to donate tissues or organs. Now Jordan's gonna talk about medical, but there are three places where that appears in documents because they wanna know, they wanna capture it if it's a good, they wanna capture it at the time that that would be relevant or appropriate. Before you get cremated is, is one time. Another one is on your driver's license, you may have a heart and that says if you want to donate issues or tissues or organs, and also the last place is in your living will, which is the document that Jordan's going to talk about that has to do with life support. So we like you to remain consistent with that selection because it makes for continuity and no gray areas. So that is also um, something that is on the disposition of last remains, as well as you can add whatever else you want. We have, we have the ability to be creative in that document and say whatever you think is important at this juncture with respect to you and what you would like to see happen. So I'm going to move on to power of attorney medical, which I'm only going to lightly touch upon because Jordan's going to um, speak more to that. Powers of attorney, which are both financial and medical, are valid during your lifetime. Once you die, there's no, they're no longer valid. Medical is used for incapacity. If you do not have a medical power of attorney and that you can make decisions for yourself, then they're going to have to open a guardianship case at Picking County District Court or wherever you are because nobody can have that power without you granting it or without a court granting it. Hugely important. I've seen cases where somebody has nothing and we end up having to open cases out where they are in St. They're in ICU and you open the case in uh, Mesa County and you have to transfer it. Your file's five inches thick just because they didn't have a power of attorney. So it's very, very important that you um, have a medical and a financial. The financial is different than the medical. It strictly has to do with your assets and your debts. So it has different elements. You can create a financial power of attorney that is not upon incapacity. It could be live. And the benefit of it being live is that you don't have to go through the process of proving incapacity if you need to sign for someone. Whether it's a spouse that's out of the country, whether it's a spouse that just fell and broke their hip, whether it's because your spouse um, is really not being not feeling well, but it's so it can be used for convenience as well as because you need to do that because they need your help. Most people are okay with that because the person they select is their agent they trust 100%. So that flexibility is allowed in a financial, which is great. The powers of attorney, I, I think I referenced briefly when we were talking about trusts. They are difficult at times. They're scrutinized. I just did a real estate closing in Aspen, and I did a power, I did, I was going to act on behalf of the seller, and the title company did not like my power, of, they wanted their own power of attorney. So it's scrutinized because it can be a document that's easily obtained. So there's a lot of fraudulent behavior around it. So there's a lot of case law. So it's easy to give somebody a piece of paper and say, sign here. So that is why third parties are very critical about accepting a power of attorney because they don't want to get sued. So that applies to title companies, financial institutions, anybody that is accepting that power of attorney, and they have exposure or concern that it's not valid. So fiduciary agents and designees, those are the people in your state plan that are, are going to take care of financial um, issues or means, and they are the ones you trust that can handle the financial. The first one is a trustee and a trust, held to a very high standard, they are the ones that you trust are going to act in your best interest. They're, they're held accountable. If they in any way violate that duty, they can be sued, meaning it's very, very, um, it's a very important position, and it's a fiduciary one. 
personal representative has the same, they are a fiduciary, fiduciary as well. You want people that are managing the money, whether it's during your lifetime, whether it's upon your death, to be acting in a fiduciary manner. So these are people you pick that you really trust. Some people use banks, trust companies. Um, that's not necessary, but that may be the appropriate um, fiduciary for your situation. Financial power of attorney is another fiduciary. So that agent, when I made the comment that they, if they somehow abused that power, that they would be, they, they're a fiduciary, they're held to that standard, they are liable. But because a lot of that happens behind the scenes and they're, it, it's harder to hold them accountable if, um, well, you can hold them accountable. It's just managing those transactions becomes harder because it's usually, with a trust, it's very trust-driven, whereas with a power of attorney, it can be very personal. Disposition of last remains, the designee, really the only financial, they're not really a fiduciary, they're, they're an agent, but they're handling the effects of your remains and how that is, is handled, et cetera. So that is an important position, but they're actually not considered a fiduciary. Is there any questions at this point that I can address before we move on? Okay, I think you're next. Okay, so Jordan's going to talk about living wills, medical powers of attorney, um, DNRs. That's it. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we're kind of going to switch over into more of the medical side of what you want to happen while you're still alive. And advanced directives is a way that you can make your wishes known while you have capacity about what you want to happen when you no longer have capacity. Um, so, like I said, medical directives under Colorado law, you have the power to make your end of life wishes known. You have the power to designate an agent to speak for you when you no longer have capacity. and you, it can cause a little confusion because there's a lot of different advanced directives out there. Um, living wills, which we'll talk about, medical durable power of attorneys, which Jean touched on, CPR directives, you may have seen five wishes at the senior center, um, and these are all examples of advanced directives. So um, we'll start with medical power of attorney. And like Jean said, this you determine who an agent to act on your behalf um, regarding your medical and personal care when you no longer have the capacity to do so. And medical power of attorney, though, doesn't just apply to an end-of-life situation. It could apply if you're in a car accident and are temporarily incapacitated. Um, again, you're designating an agent to be able to speak with your doctors, speak with your medical insurance company if necessary, and make decisions about your treatment. Um, a medical power of attorney, if it is more of a long-term incapacity situation, you're giving that person the, to make decisions about in-home care or if you need to be in a facility. So you're really granting this person the ability to make all these decisions for you. Um, so you want to choose someone, obviously, who you trust, but also different than a financial power of attorney, thinking about who you've spoken to, who knows how you want to be treated in this situation. So that can be anything from, you know, eating and drinking, um, in-home care versus being in a facility, um, how you want to be treated. So these are just some things to think about when you're thinking about who you would want to designate and the conversation that you would want to have with that person now um, about how you might want to be treated later on. Um, so, well, I think Jean touched on this too. Again, you're waiving your HIPAA rights with this person, um, which is really important because that is what gives doctors and insur insurance companies the legal ability to discuss your medical care with them. Um, so we'll kind of talk about how these two documents work together, but your medical power of attorney gives your agent the power to make these decisions all the way up until you hit your living will. So if you have another advanced directive about true end of life, then your decisions will stand. And that really takes um, that power out, back out of your medical power of attorney's hands, and we'll talk about that. 
um, and how that's helpful. So a living will, which a lot of people can be confused about what it is, but under Colorado statute, it's a very specific document that pertains to um, how you want to be treated and if you're in a terminal condition or persistent vegetative state. So again, this does not apply just because you may have cancer or dementia. This comes into play when two doctors have signed off on the fact that no medical treatment is going to improve your condition. So um, again, it informs your doctors and any medical profession professionals of how you want to be treated in this situation. And it gives your friends and family peace of mind knowing that they don't have to make the decision about when and how you want to be removed from life-sustaining procedures and artificial nutrition. So these are really specific definitions that you don't need to read through. I just put them there to kind of further emphasize that the living will is a very specific document that applies to a very specific situation. Um, so a lot of people kind of think it's this the pull the plug document, which in a way it is, but you know, you're not getting pulled in on two wheels on the ambulance and they're looking at your living will. This is, you've been in the hospital, again, pr for some time, doctors have used every medical procedure they know to help you, to bring you back, and we're way past that now. So we're at the point where, again, two doctors have signed off that no more medical care is gonna improve your condition. Um, and that's when you are saying you want to be left on life support for zero days or five days or two weeks or you want artificial nutrition not to be continued or you want it to be continued for a week, five days. Again, you get to make those decisions. You take those decisions out of the hands of your loved ones so they don't have to decide that for you. Um, other things that Jean touched on that you can talk about in your living will again is organ and tissue donation. And you can give HIPAA authorization to others besides just your medical power of attorney. So for example, if you have a large family and you want all of your children to be able to be in the room while the doctor discusses your medical care, you can list all your friends, all your family that you would want to be able to hear that information. Um, and that might be important to you. Um, CPR directives, that's just another advanced directive. Again, it's very specific. Um, it's a form that you have to have, have your doctor sign, and that, again, tells your wishes to emergency medical staff, if you're in a hospital or in a care facility, um, what you want to happen if you stop breathing or um, your heart stops, whether or not you want to be resuscitated. And... Um, Again, won't go into the details on these, but five wishes and most are other advanced directive forms that you might see in um, the senior center or hospital. And I, sorry, I see a question in the back. Go ahead. Is a CPR for each? Is a CPR necessary for each hospital admission, and do you need a new one for each hospital admission? So. That is going to be dependent on the policies of the hospital or um, doctor's office, depending if you're having a specific procedure. And if they want you to fill one of those out, then they're going to give that to you. Um, I, I'll touch on this in a little bit. Typically, if you, you know, if you have one of those, if you have any of these documents, um, one important thing is to make sure your friends and family know that you have these documents, that your doctors, the hospitals that you might go to know that you have these documents um, because otherwise they don't do anybody any good. So if you have a living, you've gone through the process of doing a living will, but no one knows that it exists, then no one's gonna know what your wishes are. So um, all of the local hospitals, your doctor's offices, as soon as you fill these out, you can put them on file with you and they'll just be, um, part of your file. So if you end up in the hospital in a, with a car accident or anything, um, they'll have those documents on file. Same with your medical power of attorney. Um, but as for the CPR documents, that again, those are really specific documents um, that your physician has to sign. And so that just depends on the policy of each um, medical care facility, what they would want for that. 
Um, so again, just making sure, and this goes for all of your estate planning documents, um, you want at least some trusted person in your life to know that you have these, where they are, um, whether it's a safety deposit box or a safe, um, because again, it doesn't do anybody any good if you've gone through the trouble of doing all the documents, but nobody nobody knows about them. So um, that's it. I think our the last thing we tend to talk to you about with your estate planning is your memo from heaven. And this is something that you can do on your own. You don't need to an attorney, but um, it's just what would you want your friends, your family, your loved ones, your financial um, fiduciaries, all the information they would need if you weren't here. Um, and that's passwords, security questions when you call your credit card company or your bank, um, all your account numbers, IRAs, um, how if you pay on, you know, do online bill pay, just all the day-to-day -day life stuff, whether or not you have a safe deposit box and if so, where the key is. Um, as everybody knows, the more and more technology we all have, the more passwords and things like that. So it's just a good way, and it's a good thing to take stock of that um, so that you kind of remember all the things you have and all the different passwords you have. And there's all different kinds of apps on your phone now where you can keep track of passwords. Um, but we've heard some, there's been some tough stories of, you know, one spouse who kind of handled it, all the credit card or something, and they pass, and the other spouse really could not even call their own credit card company um, without a lot of hassle. So it's really important to make sure you have all of this stuff written down and in a place where um, somebody knows where to find it. So I think that wraps it up if we want to, oh, Jean's going to close, and then we'll do questions. No, that's in our handout, but we are happy to give you a copy. Last year, we actually had handouts. Jordan and I did this last year, so we're happy to give that to you. Yes, the memo from heaven, yeah. The memo from heaven, as Jordan said, is really so important, and it comes from you. It's not something we draft. It's something that you think of what would they need to know if something happened to me today or I became sick and couldn't handle my affairs anymore? It's really a gift because people don't necessarily share passwords or things that maybe are, you know, just not that relevant for the day. And the other thing I suggest is with your filing at home, you know, when you do create this memo from heaven, really look at your filing system and close your eyes and say, could somebody else understand this? Because I've had cases where I've gone in and I, you, they're, they're hard to really understand their filing system. So one of the things in that case was we couldn't figure out whether there really was life insurance. So we become in private investigators. So that helps eliminate our private investigation when we really don't know exactly what's happened. So as an over, well, let me, let me comment one more thing on the DNR. DNRs are accepted, but Jordan's right. You really do want current ones. But if you have a DNR in the portal of where you most likely will be in a hospital or you, I think they make bracelets if you have a DNR, there are ways you can carry that in your wallet, those kinds of things, but they are accepted. But if it's outdated or they feel it's no longer relevant based on other medical information, maybe they would uh, question that. But I think they really do try to honor that through, throughout wherever in, people end up. So I thought I would just do a quick recap so estate planning 101 really is, is about during your lifetime, what are the things that matter, powers of attorney, revocable trust can be powerful during your lifetime. And then upon death, we start dealing with the, the distribution of your assets and how that is done and, and who you want to receive. And if they aren't living, who else do you want to receive? As well as where you want to be buried or cremated all those things come together and they all cover from your lifetime till past and it's all very important. So it's sort of a collective um, group of, of documents and decisions you make, but it is a gift to your family and your loved ones because you're doing all that ahead of time and they're not having to determine that upon incapacity or upon your death. Is there any other questions? That's a good question. I mean, you have to be incapacitated, and there's a definition. 
And, and, and I've seen POAs be brought in before incapacitation because they're not, they still have some ability, but they're dying. So it can be broadened, but if they dispute it, then a court would make that decision. I mean, if they clearly, I don't, a, a doctor's not going to make that. They don't want to deal with that. But, I mean, if it really is disputed and there's no reconciliation, there's nobody that can resolve that dispute, then it would be something that would be determined by the court. Right. Well, yeah, I, I think we're talking about incapacity from a mental standpoint, that not, abil not have the mental ability to make decisions about your your medical care and that sort of thing. And usually it's black and white. I mean, it's usually pretty clear. And I don't think doctors or people that are referring to that don't really want to take that away from somebody if they still have some ability to make decisions. Yeah, it's... it's The question... Oh, I'm sorry. Where do you store the memo from heaven? It has sensitive issues and sensitive information that you wouldn't want anybody to get their hands on. What I mean, it really depends on how you're concerned about that. But I would share the information with the person that is going to be just, you know, they're going to be reading the memo from heaven, your personal representative, your successor trustee, that they know where things are. So in our office, we create an original binder, a copy binder, and we also hand out thumb drives. So it may be that we put on that thumb drive to someone else where that is located. So there's ways to protect against something happening, but I think it's so personal. A lot of people put it in their safe, and then they give the combination of that safe or that safety deposit box to one person or to several in a way that it wouldn't be decoded by somebody that somehow got into your house and used that information against you, you know, in a financial situation. So the question... So that, I'm going to repeat the question. The question was, what do you do if you don't have anybody that you trust to act as your medical care agent? And is it, I think the other question was, is it makes sense for a living will situation to tape it on your fridge so that somebody would see that? So I'll answer the agent question first. There, there are people that will act as agents, public administrators. There are choices. It is hard to find somebody that you trust, and unfortunately, the choice is somebody that wouldn't necessarily have a personal relationship with you. So I try to work with through work that issue through with the client and really try to find somebody that they know that knows them that could do this job, even if it's somebody that may not be your family. You know, it's somebody that you know would make a good decision. Some people pick friends that are in the medical field, like a nurse, like a doctor. You know, I think it's so personal. I mean, if you feel strongly about that, that may be an answer. But there is options for you, but they're more um, through a public setting, meaning like a administrator through our public administrator, which is um, attached to our court system. The other question about living well, and this also applies to powers of attorney medical, 
we really encourage and we do it for you where we will send your power of attorney, medical power of attorney and living will to your portal at the hospital, the doctor's office, which you want to have us uh, provide that information to. So what's great if you live in the Valley and you don't know whether you'll end up at Aspen Valley or Valley View, then you, we can put it in both and it's in a confidential setting, you know, confidential portal unit. The, going back to the living will, which I think is also important to note, the reason the living will has become so popular is because we had these cases that were so severe where somebody was left on um, life support for many, many years because there was a conflict in what, they, what should be done between the family members. So it's, it's very important. It's great to have. And as Jordan said, it's a gift to your family that the family members don't have to make. But it's, it's a very small percentage of those ca of cases that end up in a living well situation, believe it or not. And there is the ability in the living well if you want to have your medical power of attorney agent um, contradict your wishes if you choose that as a selection. In other words, you could give somebody power to change the living will, but we don't recommend that. We, I mean, if we like the fact that you've made that decision and that's your philosophical personal decision and then nobody else has to figure that out or, or make that decision when, if that time should come. So did I answer m most of you? Oh, sure. Yes. Does it ever make sense to have two medical power of attorneys just because it seems like it would be handy to have one here locally and then a family member that's far away or does that complicate things? I think that complicates because I have a lot of clients that select people that don't live here as their power of attorney agent whether it's a child or you know a, a friend or whatever I, I think that you want in estate planning the best thing you can do is be clear be very clear, be very black and white, so there's no ambiguity. So I think in that case, you could always make them co, and they could act alone. So if you feel that one is far far away, the one that's here could act alone. Uh, we do the same in financial if that's what you want. In other words, you have those choices that you can select multiple and they can act alone. Or you can create a successor, which is what we also recommend that someone is your successor of that original agent you've named is unable to serve or really doesn't want to serve. And I think that brings to the point, nobody has to take the job of successor trustee or personal representative. If you get named in a document and you don't want to do it or don't feel you are the best person to do it, you can decline. There's no obligation to take on those roles. So, so in the same idea, with the same um, idea, you can name people and if they can't do it, then you move, up, you move on to your next choice. So people say, well, what if they're, what, they're my same age? What if they're not well? And I said, well, they, you have, you've named somebody that can take over if they can't do it or that they choose to not accept that responsibility. You're saying that um, a co-trustee does work, but... A co-trustee or co-agent, are we still talking about medical? Right. Okay, medical, you can put, that, that can be stated in your power of attorney. You can tell your attorney to state that, that they can act alone if that's what you choose. Right. Medical is to me a little bit, I, I feel it's so personal. So if you trust that any individual could act alone and do the, the best job, if they were both acting, then I think you can make that choice. I think medical is a, such a different analysis than financial. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm going to have Jenny come to you. I think I understand the questions, but I want to make sure I heard you correctly. I think you were asking about verbiage that's in another state. Yeah, um, when I made my will and trust previously, 
I also, the executor was the name of the person who will execute the will. Is that the same as a trustee? And then I had a question about how much financial ability they have to get into the trust and take as much money out of it. An executor doesn't make the will. Um, it doesn't? No. The executor is, uh, and in Colorado we call it personal representative, that's the person okay. that administers the will. That's what I meant, administrator of the will. Is that the same thing as a trustee? No, a trustee is dead. A trustee is referring to a trust. So when I talked about, oh, I'm, revo sorry. I'm sorry, I meant of the trust, not the will. I apologize. So a trustee of the, a trust is similar as a fiduciary, as a personal representative in a will. We typically name the same person in both. Okay. And I didn't get into this, but I will tell you when you have a trust. You also have a very small will, which that will is called what we call a pour-over will. And what that means is if there's one asset you forgot to put in your trust, it was a stock certificate in the bottom of a drawer and somebody found it, that will will allow us open probate solely for the purpose of transferring that stock to your trust because your trust dictates your how you want your assets to be distributed. Right, but then my, my big question is how much do the trustees have access to the money without the other per I wish I could explain this better. They, why don't I talk with you one-on-one -on -one afterwards? Okay, that, that makes sense. I would love to see the CPR directives one more time because okay. I got as far as DN DNR, but is there an, was there another CPR directive that you... And I want to be really clear about CPRs. We, as lawyers, have nothing to do with CPRs. Just so you know, we it's all done through a physician. We obviously care about those, but it's really going to be coming from your doctor's office. Like, like I may not even get a copy, even okay. though I do the estate planning, because it's a separate medical issue that it's handled with your physician because what that physician is saying I acknowledge you do not want to be resuscitated and I think that physician needs to explain what that means because that is um, can be very I mean it's it's obviously a life a life or death situation so okay, okay but the, the but EM, I will EMTs come to my house they ha they don't know I have a DNR mm -hmm. or whatever and I'm in respiratory distress mm -hmm. what happens now how do they know that I don't want to be? They don't. Okay. Yeah. So you're just stuck with that. Well, I think, you know, you want, if you really care about that issue, you need to, and I think I mentioned you can get a bracelet. I think you can make sure it's in the hospital's portal under, you know, your private portal. And the EMTs in our area, I'm sure, have access to that. So it's, it's a hard one, but I think if you really care, you're going to have to make it really clear. Because it, nobody wants to not resuscitate you. They will resuscitate to you. That's the, the general rule. I'm going to back that up for you so you can look at what Jordan created. Um, and it looks like there's a free template. But remember, your doctor's office has this. So if you want him to or her to sign off on this, they're going to have that form in the office. You bet. Any other questions? We have the Neptune Society and carry a card in our wallets. Where should we put that information in the documents that we have? In what document should we include? We have Neptune Society, so let us die and leave us alone. Jenny, can you? And oh, we have cards in our wallet for the Neptune Society. So what document should we include that in? Living will, living trust, living something, or? Is Neptune Society a commonly known? No, does any, can you explain what that is? We have um, pre-designated that the Nept wherever we die, we could die in Europe, we could die in the United States, we could die in Mexico. Then we have a card 
that says, do not remove this body, don't move them any place, and we have to be uh, pronounced dead, the Neptune Society comes and takes care of our remains. Okay, so it's a specific society that will deal with the remains, the remains you're instructing to be left in one place. Where would this information be kept? So for clarity purposes, is this um, triggered upon actually death or upon, upon near death or you? Yes. Death. Right. The Neptune Society is called. They come and they pick up the body and uh, we are to be cremated. Okay. And then and they take care of it. So that they've been given notice through the card that's in your wallet. Mm -hmm. The disposition of last remains is the document you would be more clear about what you want to happen with your remains. Does, does that answer your question? Well, what document should we include that we have this? Disposition of last remains. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. And I would have that on your person if that is, you know, somehow it can correlate with your card in your wallet. We have four minutes left. Okay. We have uh, any more questions? One right here. Getting my fair share. Um, I'm curious about the the benefit of a um, of your cell phone having the in case of emergency, um, where the where first responders can get into it without your password. Does that carry? Would that be a good place to put some of this information of DNR and CPR and things, or would that not be legal? I, I'm I'm not familiar with that. I, so I'm thinking I, I, I think it's very interesting if there's a way they can get into your phone and learn a lot about you. But I no, just, let me ask Jordan. Just she's, you, yeah, okay, she's of a younger generation. Maybe she knows. I think that's fantastic if you can find ways for people to get the information you want them to have in as many ways as possible. Yeah. Um, I am not aware of the one where EMTs can get into your phone and learn about what your desires are with respect to your health and your body, et cetera. Yeah. But I think that is important. Now, in this memo from heaven, which is not going to be on your person if something happens to you, but it, that's a great place to put everything. And and one other, so it could be everything from a password to that, or I have that, and and let your family members know that. So, I know that you get called pretty quickly if a family member is sick. EMTs is a different you know situation because it's obviously something that's very immediate and emergency. So. Um, it'll be interesting. I'll, I will look into that to see if that's something that can be utilized. But I don't, it's not something that I'm aware of as, as of yet. I'm just curious how many people in this room are aware of that because I think this would be a community project I would yeah. take on no, it's to great. train people um, how, how to get this on their phone. I, th I think it's a marvelous idea. It, it absolutely is. And, and I think it'd be important really for everybody to it. know about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you. Every, okay. Oh, Jenny, are you over there? I, I, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. But she's, Who was talking? Oh, behind. Not me. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry. Yeah. The only problem is if your phone battery wears out or oh. something happens to True. your phone, that doesn't help. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But I think that we do our best. Of giving, but I love this idea, and I'm, we're going to explore it. We do everything we can to guide our clients to do what they can to have that have whatever information that is important to to them available to the people they want to have that inf information. And one more um, comment on memo from heaven. That isn't. I did. I mean, I didn't make up the concept. I made up the the verbiage of it. One late client meeting afternoon and it really just means anything that's important to share for purposes of distributing the estate but it's also important if you feel you want to share something to a loved one I have people that write letters to their children write letters to people that have done wonderful things whatever it is the beauty of a memo from heaven is you can change it every day of the week because it is in your possession 
I usually get the first round. Some people continue to update me. But it's really a great vehicle that gives so much information, a variety of levels, to the person that is going to be taking care of or distributing or taking care of you or your estate and that can pass that information on. One other area that we miss that's important is called memorandum of tangible personal property. When you have personal property pursuant to your will you and, and your trust, you can designate on a piece of paper that's designed to contain information where it referenced your will or your trust, that you can list all your personal property. If you change your mind, you can change that form without a lawyer, without a witness, without a notary. So it's a great way to distribute to specific people that you don't want to provide the full full personal property list, but a girlfriend, a sister, you know, you want to give your sister, you know, your mother's wedding ring that you inherited or something of that nature, and it can be changed every day of the week if you wanted that is valid um, with respect to the items that are put on that memorandum. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Jordan, very much.